0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Today's program is produced by James Blend. Clark Hilton is engineering. We're going to talk with Dave Willis. He's the author of Raising Boys Who Respect Girls. Upending locker room mentality, blind spots, and unintended sexism. In the Me Too era, he uh, helps uh, both adults and young boys uh, to put an end to things that are offensive. So we'll talk with Dave Willis about that when he joins us later this hour. We're in the second round of impeachment hearings today. I've got one eye poised on what's happening. We'll try to keep you up to date on what happened earlier in the day and perhaps cover more tomorrow. But uh, that is going on Right now, we also have the uh, Democrats uh, debate tonight um, as well. We'll make brief comment on that, but that's coming up this evening. Ten candidates will be on that stage. Well, beginning Tuesday morning, a rush of five public hearings ahead of Thanksgiving recess. Eight witnesses, including several who have provided inconsistent accounts of key events, are set to testify over three days, today being the first in what could be a make-or-break week in the Democrats' impeachment investigation A key impeachment figure, though he's not slated to uh, testify, um, well, and did earlier today, Ambassador to European Union Gordon Sondland, who repeatedly has frustrated Democrats' narrative by contradicting several other key witnesses in that probe. We'll let you know what he had to say earlier today. Uh, Testifying um, yesterday, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vendman, a National Security Council official, Uh, testified Tuesday morning. He had testified behind closed doors that Sondland cited a discussion with White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney when pushing Ukrainian officials to open the investigation that Trump wanted into the 2016 U.S. presidential election and into potential election opponent Joe Biden. National Security Council official Tom Morrison the outgoing senior director of European and Russian affairs and White House deputy assistant testified Tuesday afternoon in his closed door deposition, which Democrats released over the weekend. Morrison said Trump didn't want tax dollars funding Ukrainian corruption and remarked that he wasn't concerned Trump's calls with Ukrainian leader were tied to his political interests. Republicans have further noted that Morrison has testified privately that he had concerns about Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's judgment and had heard concerns that Vindman was... A leaker. In other Trump impeachment inquiry developments, David Hale, the State Department's number three official, testified in a November 6th closed-door deposition that no one in the Trump administration or any government channel ever mentioned former Vice President Joe Biden or his son as a reason for withholding aid from Ukraine, according to a transcript of his remarks released late Monday by House Democrats in their impeachment inquiry. Hale uh, is, uh, testified earlier today, or is testifying now. I'm not sure who's—yes, in fact, he's testifying now. Also late Monday, Democrats released testimony from State Department official David Holmes who said in his November 15th deposition behind closed doors that the conversation he overheard between Trump and Sondland during a lunch in Ukraine was so distinctive, even extraordinary, uh, that nobody needed to refresh his memory. He is uh, set to testify publicly on Thursday. Well, two correctional officers responsible for guarding Jeffrey Epstein when he took his own life are expected to face criminal charges and have this week for falsifying prison records. The federal charges... uh, uh, charged that two people familiar with the matter uh, that the uh, that these would be the first in a connection in connection rather with the death of Epstein, the wealthy financier who died on the 10th of August at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York while awaiting trial on charges of sexually abusing teenage girls. Meanwhile, on Monday, a woman who came forward with accusations of child sex abuse against Epstein described a disturbing encounter with the now deceased a uh, individual said she took um, f- former bill clinton's seat on the lolita express and noted bizarre floors made of mattress foam and being encouraged to cry Uh, with the disgraced money man. About 100 anti-government protesters remain holed up in a Hong Kong university on Tuesday as a police siege of the campus entered its third day. City uh, leaders Carrie Lam said 600 people had left the Hong Kong Polytechnic campus, including 200 who were under 18. Police have uh, rather surrounded the university and are arresting anyone who leaves. Groups of protesters made several attempts to escape on Monday, including sliding down hoses and Uh, to waiting motorcycles, but it wasn't clear if they evaded arrest. Universities uh, became the latest battleground last week in the Hong Kong protest movement, now in its fifth month. Ex-MYPD Commissioner Carrick says that Bloomberg's stop-and-frisk apology shows he's forgotten his own success. And Supreme Court Justice uh, John Roberts has put a hold on releasing the president's tax returns. Elizabeth Warren is relying on rationing in Medicare for All, her plan costing Uh, The cost-cutting measure would likely lead to long wait lines uh, in limited care. Ilhan Omar is funneling another $150,000 to her alleged, well, boyfriend, I'll use that word, and his consulting group that's under investigation. Nearly 80,000 deferred action for childhood arrivals or DACA recipients have prior arrest records, we're learning, nearly 80,000. And a tough Trump asylum policy is prompting migrants to enter the United States and then flee to Canada. Chick-fil-A has stopped uh, donating to Christian charities branded anti-LGBT. We'll talk more about that later in the program. And Utah police are training teachers for active shooting. Well, as I mentioned, Chick-fil-A President and Chief Operating Officer Tim uh, Tassopoulos explains, when there is tension, we want to make sure we're being clear. We think this is going to be helpful. It's just the right thing to do. To be clear, caring, and supportive and uh, to do it in community well that's a quote from the COO from Chick-fil-A regarding decision to withhold funds from two christian organizations Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes uh in an effort to appease LGBT plus LGBTQ plus uh opponents and SB 660, signed by Governor Andrew Cuomo on Friday, would require all employees within his state, including churches, religious schools, faith-based pregnancy care centers, and religious nonprofits, to disavow their beliefs about abortion, contraception, and sexual morality by forcing them to hire and employ those who refuse to abide by the organization's statement of faith. Alliance Defending Freedom filed the lawsuit on behalf of Rochester Pregnancy Care Center uh, Compass Care, First Bible Baptist Church, and other groups, including the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates and Association of Pro-Life Pregnancy Centers. And the next Democratic debate is likely to get feisty for Mayor Pete Buttigieg. The mayor was mostly ignored before he started climbing in the polls, and the vice president holds a big lead in South Carolina, where Buttigieg's polls zero among African-American voters. Republicans sounded a, a celebratory note as House Democrats' impeachment inquiry Wrapped up another day on Tuesday of public hearings in the evening, saying the day's witnesses had served only to highlight fundamental problems in the case against the president. Did anyone ever ask you to bribe or extort anyone at any time during your time in the White House? House Intelligence Committee Ranking Member Devin Nunez asking at one point in Tuesday's afternoon hearing, former National Security Council Uh, Aide Tim Morrison, no. Former U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine Kurt Volker, no. Later, Representative Elise uh, Stefanik uh, covered similar ground in asking Morrison and Volker about uh, Trump's fateful July 25th call with Ukrainian President Zelensky. When asked whether there are indications of quid pro quo, bribery or extortion. They each repeatedly answered no. The answers underscored a problem facing the Democrats in the second week of public hearings and their impeachment inquiry. With more witnesses testifying, more soundbites have emerged that may help Republicans and the Trump campaign argue that the proceedings were politically motivated theater long in the works and foreshadowed openly by Democrats for months, if not years. Well, we'll see if that plays out. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety-three point nine KPDQ.
2: Twenty minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. The Democratic Party will hold its fifth presidential primary debate in Atlanta tonight, and it will likely be overshadowed by the Trump impeachment inquiry. In fact, lots of people didn't know it was happening. There are ten candidates who qualify to be on the stage for Wednesday's debate. Former Vice President Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Tulsi Gabbard, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, Tom Steyer, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang. The debate comes uh, with uncertainty over whether Democrats uh, have a candidate who could defeat Donald Trump next November as former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has seriously flirted with the idea of entering the race. And former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick declared his candidacy last week. South Bend, Indiana, uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg may find himself under attack. Wednesday night as he surged in recent polls in Iowa, which holds the nation's first caucuses in February. The top admiral in the Navy plans to announce a review in which peers will determine whether to remove SEAL Eddie Gallagher's Trident pin following his highly publicized war crimes case. A senior U.S. defense official says the Trident is bestowed on SEALs in to reinforce good order and discipline across the force. Commander Nate Christensen, a spokesperson for the Navy, said that the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Mike Gilday, Supported Rear Admiral Colin Green's decision to uphold a mitigated sentence against Gallagher, who was acquitted in July of killing an Islamic State fighter in Iraq. A San Diego jury sentenced Gallagher to a re- reduced rank and four months of confinement, which he's already served for posing with the body of a dead ISIS fighter, which was considered the least egregious of the seven charges he was facing. President Trump signed an order last Friday, reversing that sentence and ordering the promotion of Gallagher back to the rank he held before his trial. And the House has voted to avoid a government shutdown for a month, sending funds, uh, a bill to the uh, Senate for funding. And the FBI is looking into the possibility that criminal enterprise was involved in the Jeffrey Epstein death. Elizabeth Warren has given up on Medicare for all by planning to pass single payer in year three of her presidency. She's acknowledging it will never happen at all. And Senate, uh, the, the Senate has passed a bill in support of Hong Kong protesters. Uh, ISIS is rebuilding in Syria after Turkish incursion and U.S. Uh, drawdown, the Pentagon watchdog, is now saying. And Glad is commending Chick-fil-A for dropping donations to Christian groups but demands fran- the uh, franchise change the uh, brand of um, its own corporation. Former Baltimore Mayor Catherine Pugh, she charged with fraud, is facing up to 20 years in prison, and a 16-year-old girl arrested before an attack on a predominantly black Georgia church is being held. Iran is imposing the largest internet shutdown ever as protesters are spreading in that country. Well, on this day in history, 1789, New Jersey becomes the first state to ratify the Bill of Rights. And on this day in 1945, 22 former non Nazi officials go on trial before an international war crimes tribunal in Nuremberg, Germany. Almost a year later, the International Military Tribunal will sentence 12 of the defendants to death. Seven would receive prison sentences ranging from 10 years to life. Three would be acquitted. On this day in 1947, Britain's future queen, Princess Elizabeth, marries Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh at Westminster Abbey. On this day in 1969, the Nixon administration announces a halt to residential use of pesticide, DDT, as part of a total phase-out. And also in 1969, a group of American Indian activists began a 19-month occupation of Alcatraz Island in San Francisco Bay. On this day in 1985, the first version of Microsoft's Windows operating system, Windows 1.0, is officially released. And in 1998, 46 states embraced a $206 billion dollar settlement with cigarette makers over health costs for treating sick smokers. On this day in 2000, lawyers for Al Gore and George W. Bush battled before the Florida Supreme Court over whether the presidential election recount should be allowed to continue. And finally, on this day in 2003, Michael Jackson is booked on suspicion of child molestation in Santa Barbara, California. Well, European Union Ambassador Gordon Sondland tied top officials to the potential quid pro quo involving U.S. military aid to Ukraine and investigations desired by the president during his highly anticipated impeachment hearing testimony today, yet uh, said he never heard that link from the president himself. One of the key witnesses in the Democrat-led impeachment inquiry against the president, Sondland claimed he kept Secretary of State Mike Pompeo aware of what was going on and said he specifically told Vice President Pence he had concerns. The military aid to Ukraine had become tied to investigations, though a Pence aide denied it and he repeatedly lambasted the president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, leading and his leading role in the administration's Ukraine dealings. Everyone was in the loop. Sondland testified it was no secret. Still in comments seized upon by Republicans, Sondlin testified, I never heard from President Trump that aid was conditioned on an announcement of investigations. He said he never personally heard Trump discuss preconditions, and at one point he confirmed Trump told him, I want nothing. Taken in their entirety, Sondland's statements Wednesday are likely to fuel the narratives of both parties, and have has already. He was seen as a wild card going into the hearing, given he's uh, uh, offered testimony that conflicted with others and recently amended his statements to acknowledge he did talk to Ukraine about investigations after initially indicating otherwise. The impeachment inquiry was sparked by a whistleblower's complaint to about Trump's July 25th call when he asked Ukraine President Zelensky for political investigations. Sondland made clear Wednesday. He merely presumed the aid was linked to investigations at one point referring to it as a guess. As I mentioned, the hearings have resumed and are taking place right now with two additional witnesses. um, And we'll certainly try to cover that um, tomorrow on the program. And that will continue on uh, Thursday as well. Well, coming up shortly, we are going to talk with the author of Raising Boys Who Respect Girls, Upending Locker Room um, Mentality, Blind Spots, and Unintended Sexism. The book is published by Nelson, and Dave Willis will join us to talk about that a bit later in uh, the next segment of today's program. Well, Congress is likely to vote next week on a second continuing resolution of fiscal year 2020. Another continuing resolution will prevent a government shutdown, but there's not much to celebrate. The fact that a month and a half into the new fiscal year, none of the 12 annual appropriations bills have been enacted is a sign of how dysfunctional the Congress and its budget process is. Well, thankfully, more members of Congress are taking notice of the breakdown in the budget process and are putting forth reforms to not only create a more efficient budget process, but one that's also more transparent and responsible. Republican Representatives Andy Biggs of Arizona and Ralph Norman of South Carolina on the 14th introduced the Budget Process Enhancement Act, The bill would make two major changes to improve the current budget process. First, it would remove the assumption that federal programs grow at the rate of inflation from the Congressional Budget Office's baseline. Next, it would institute a no-budget, no-pay policy. If Congress doesn't adopt a budget resolution by the 15th of April of each fiscal year, lawmakers would receive no pay until it does. The Budget Process Enactment Act... Uh, Enhancement Act, rather, is a, a positive first step, although not likely to pass, toward removing the bias in favor of higher spending from the baseline and eliminating an accounting gimmick used to skew the impact of budget decisions, including a no budget, no pay provision should encourage members of Congress to debate budget and appropriations bills in a timely manner. Now, I'm not holding my breath. I'm not sure you should either. Congress should continue to pursue reforms that will create a better functioning and more responsible budget process. Assuming that spending will automatically increase with inflation creates two problems. First, it allows Congress to claim spending cuts that are relative to the baseline when spending is actually increasing when compared with non-inflation adjusted levels. In other words, Congress can still be increasing spending, just not at the same pace as inflation would otherwise have increased it. And secondly, it creates a bias in favor of higher spending. The Congressional Budget Office arbitrarily assumes that agency funding will increase with inflation, not based on actual needs or proposals. Well, Biggs and Norman's bill will end the uh, practice of adjusting baseline projections for inflation and require agencies to justify additional funding according to their needs. Well, federal budgets, um, the budgeting should be about prioritizing funding toward constitutional responsibilities, removing inflation from that baseline is unlikely to address the broader need for spending reforms that limit the reach of the federal government, but forcing agencies to justify new spending uh, should slow the growth of discretionary spending and bring more transparency to the budget process. Um, We'll see if that uh, bill has a chance of being heard, particularly in view of some of the distractions that has prevented Congress from moving forward with budgeting Issues. Thirty minutes after four o'clock is the time. Once again, we're going to talk momentarily with Dave Willis. He's the author of Raising Boys Who Respect Girls: Upending Locker Room Mentality, Blind Spots, and Unintended Sexism. This from a father of four boys. He'll join us in our next segment. Brought to you in part today by Zero Res and Liberty Coin and Currency.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point that in a time when we are confronted repeatedly with yet another sexual scandal or revelation of abuse, both within and without the outside of the church, we have to ask, where are we going wrong? And more importantly, how do we break the cycle? Well, in his latest book, Raising Boys Who Respect Girls, Dave Willis argues that we must start with the heart more specifically, our own hearts. As we identify the blind spots that lead to accidental disrespect, which in turn leads to worse, we can root out unhealthy mindsets uh, before we inadvertently pass them along to sons. Well, this heart transformation is rooted in calling boys and men to a high standard, cultivating a healthy respect for God, for themselves, and for others. And he offers a practical strategy for mindful parents who know that change begins by examining their own parts in the story and then committing to each uh, to teach their children to do the same. Well, I'm delighted to have our guest with us. Uh, Dave Willis is a speaker, author, relationship coach and television host for Marriage Today. He works with his wife, Ashley, to create relationship building resources, media and events as part of a team at uh, MarriageToday.com. And, um... Uh, they have four young sons, live in Keller, Texas. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, Raising Boys Who Respect Girls, Upending Locker Room Mentality, Blind Spots and Unintended Sexism. Dave Willis, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hey, thank you, Georgine. It's an honor to be here.
2: Well, this is certainly a timely uh, topic uh, to discuss in a culture in the, the Me Too uh, movement. Was that what encouraged you to take this subject up at this time or did you see a deficit uh, before it became headline
1: news? Well, I think it was kind of both of those realities coming together. Um, just, you know, raising my boys in, in the world that they're growing up in, um, knowing the world that I was growing up in a generation ago, and seeing where we've fallen short specifically in this area of our, our messaging of of what a relationship's supposed to look like. You know, what what is God's plan for, you know, for sexual purity? How should we relate to one another in a respectful way? And just seeing that this has been a long, long, many many generation paths of um, of brokenness and then I think when the the me too era uh, really started trending and these stories were emerging and and many people that I'd admired from a distance in entertainment or in ministry um, were men who on the surface looked like they were doing everything right but then behind the scenes so many of these guys were were living a double life and it kind of crystallized uh, the thinking and and really called my wife and I to this higher sense of urgency that we've got to get this message right and how we're teaching our sons to navigate the complicated reality they're growing up in and to become men who really do have true integrity and, and to become men who are respecters of women.
2: Well, I appreciate the subtitle of the book because you take into account the, the locker room mentality, but also, uh, with a bit of grace, blind spots and unintended sexism, things that happen that may not be intentional but have the same result, and trying to avoid that from becoming a reality that could uh, derail a man's future.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, and in the interviews I did for the book, both with men and with women, uh, those kind of blind spots and unintended parts of of some sexism were really things that were eye opening to me, and I had to face the sobering reality that that I've been part of the problem here. you know i've I've had these blind spots, and i've uh, and I certainly don't want to keep having those, and I don't want to pass those on to my sons. But one of the quotes that one lady that I interviewed um, for the book, she said, "I truly believe that most sexism would disappear completely." If if men were aware of of their blind spots, that most men truly want to be good men. They want to be men who are respecters of women, and that was reassuring for me. Because we see these these you know horror stories on the news of guys who've you know really just been um, evil in their actions. But I do believe that that is a that is a small exception. That, that most of what we're seeing is a result of of those blind spots and things that are unintended that can be corrected.
2: Now, do you think the the problem is that men just don't understand women uh, well enough to to know what is offensive to a woman that might seem perfectly acceptable to a man, or is it a, a lack of interest in uh, in in extending oneself beyond what might feel natural in order to honor someone, uh, particularly women?
1: I think it's I think it's all of those things that you said very poignantly. I think that it's all of those things. that... I do believe that in part of our kind of the greater culture's um, desire to sort of er- erase any kind of distinctions between the genders in an attempt to, to create, you know, the cultural view of what, what equality should mean, a lot of times we mistakenly think that means erasing all distinctions and that men and women are exactly the same apart from some God-given hardware. But the truth is God wired us up with beautiful distinctions, and, and masculinity and femininity are both God-given gifts but, um, with our kids being raised to think that uh, you know we're all what, we're all exactly the same, I think a lot of times boys have a different way of relating to one another, and then when they relate to girls that same way, it, it can be taken as disrespect, and it's simply a blind spot that the boys didn't know, you know, especially like in a, in a household like mine, where my, my sons are growing up without sisters. I have four boys, no girls. And so we have to be intentional about putting them in situations where they're having meaningful and healthy and consistent interactions with girls so that they can um, be comfortable in those settings and they can learn respect um, with their peers. But then I, I do think sometimes it's not just a blind spot. I think that there is sometimes a mentality, a misogynistic mentality that can be uh, passed on. And that's the locker room mentality aspect I talked about. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we have to, we have to attack head on. Like there's no, no place for that. And I think that that mentality has been allowed to exist behind closed doors uh, in so many places for so long. And that's, that's where this kind of cancerous mindset has festered. And a big part of the book is just in how do, we, how do we tackle that and eradicate it.
2: What are the root causes of sexism and sexual misconduct that we've seen in the culture late, uh, lately? I think there are many.
1: Um, one of the, the main ones, and one of the main ones I strongly believe, is the prevalence of pornography from an early age. You know, our, our kids with technology... Uh, there's an earlier and earlier first exposure to porn right now. The average age of first exposure to porn is 10 years old. So the average 10-year-old boy has seen some form of pornography, whether he was looking for it or not, or it was just a friend showing him. And when in, in adolescence, it's like there's wet cement in our minds and our hearts And the impressions that are made there as it relates, especially to any kind of sexual imagery, it it makes impressions that harden over time and it shapes the way we see ourselves, it shapes the way we see the opposite sex. And so many young people are essentially getting their sex education from porn, which is designed, you know, for the most part by men and for men, uh, to be just a a horribly misogynistic and objectifying uh, view of sex and view of women. And and our cultures believe this lie that it's harmless entertainment, and because of that, it's so, so prevalent, both inside and outside the church. In the marriage ministry my wife and I do, we talk a lot about porn, just because in the work we do, we see that it is one of the biggest toxic forces in marriages. But it's also one of the biggest toxic forces in the next generation, our young people, growing up with the wrong mindsets as it relates to sex and as it relates to respect. One of the
2: themes, uh, key themes in your book, is never trade temporary pleasure for permanent regret. Um, yes. You discuss this with your sons. Explain why that's so important to link consequence uh, and regret to one's conduct.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we live in a world of instant gratification. You know, we want everything immediately, including including pleasure and. Um, and when sex gets gets brought into that mindset, where we look at sex as just a commodity uh, that, that's kind of on, on demand, and then other people become kind of on demand for our own pleasure, then we're really, really falling into a toxic mindset where we're using people instead of truly loving them and seeing their God-given nobility as, as image bearers of, of God. And so I want my boys to know that especially as it relates, to, to our relationships and especially as it relates to any decision um, that has anything to do with sex that the stakes are simply higher and never trade temporary pleasure for permanent regret and I'm really transparent uh, in, in the book and even in the way that I talk to my sons about ways that I've blown it here and, and specifically with the issue of pornography I was one of the stats I was one of those teenage guys that really had a struggle with porn and it it wrecked my my thinking for a long time, and so I'm I'm talking about these things not just in terms of statistics and not just in terms of, of Bible verses, even though those are all very important. But I'm also talking about it in terms of let me tell you what this did to me, and and the process of having to detox from that that mindset. So. I'm helping, hoping to protect my sons and, and other people's sons, um, not only from the dangers that are out there now, but from some of the very mistakes that I made. Yeah.
2: Yeah. We're talking with Dave Willis. He's the author of Raising Boys Who Respect Girls, Upending Locker Room Mentality, Blind Spots and Unintended Sexism. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back, continuing my conversation with Dave Willis, speaker, author, relationship host, television host for Marriage Today. His latest book, Raising Boys Who Respect Girls, upending locker room mentality, blind spots, and unintended sexism. Now, you interviewed a number of men and women for the book. Where do you begin if you want to evaluate, are there blind spots um, uh, that would result in unintended sexism beyond the things that we would all identify as, yeah, these are things that need to be adjusted. But what are some of the common blind spots that might surprise listeners?
1: Sure. And, and this was incredibly helpful coming straight from women, because I certainly didn't want you know, us guys guessing at what we're doing that, that might be perceived as, as, uh, as, as respect versus disrespect. So I asked a lot of ladies specifically, you know, what do men do to make you feel most respected and what do men do to make you feel least respected or disrespected? And, and the answers were, were amazing. Um, I think some of the most common, common blind spots were, were simple things like interruption. And in, the, in some of the statistical reach research I did, I, I realized that women are interrupted uh, in conversation and in group settings at a rate that's staggeringly higher than, um, than, than men being interrupted. And I'm just like, well, right there, what a, what a clear example of disrespect and most of the men who are doing it probably don't even realize that they're doing it. But somewhere along the way, they, they bought into the mindset that it's it's okay to interrupt a woman in a way where it would not be okay to interrupt a man in the same concept. And so that was one of kind of the most clear distinctions and one that really has made me uh, view my own conversations, especially in group settings, in a completely different way to really think, am, am I am I doing that? Am I being that guy? And I think, um, you know, that's one that has nothing at all to do with, with sex in terms of uh, you know, uh, sexual harassment or anything. It, it's just a simple example of showing respect versus disrespect that I think we can all be more aware of.
2: Now, using that same example, were you able to identify the reason behind uh, the fact that men feel it's perfectly uh, all right to interrupt women in ways that they wouldn't interrupt a male colleague, for example?
1: I think some there are some negative uh, kind of stereotypes that are limiting stereotypes that are really being reinforced sadly, um, you know even in in homes and even in schools. You know I found that in like group projects in school as early as elementary school, uh, that girls would end up having to take on the majority of the administrative tasks, they would be, you know, expected to be the ones to have to write things down. Um, even if, you know, if, if the, the boys were, were talking, the girls would have to, to write it down again, not always, but from an early age, um, there are just some dynamics that are being reinforced not everywhere, but again, you know, it, it a statistically relevant amount to point out to say, yeah, this is, this is really a problem that is kind of conditioning our kids think this is an okay dynamic that we don't have to treat each other with with equal respect regardless of gender but we can treat each other in very distinct ways with the amount of respect we give um, based on a person's gender and just being aware of that uh, from an early age and how we're you know how we're interacting with our own kids and and the way that we're um, the way that we're doing things in school I think just being aware of that is is part of the solution
2: now for parents who want to model behavior that reflects the kinds of priorities that you write about in the book how do they uh, how do they make that adjustment how do they uh, influence their sons by their own behavior and after having recognized some areas in which yeah there's there's a blind spot or
1: unintended sexism i, I think that's a great great question and it's it's really multifaceted and you know throughout the book i give a lot of age specific examples i think part of the conversation starter Um, because I think now with all these things coming to light all all at once in in light of the Me Too and the Church Too movements, one of the unintended negative effects of that is in some of the interviews in the book. Tragically, you know, I talk to a lot of boys and young men who carry a certain amount of shame just by being male, because the word toxic has been placed in front of the word masculinity so often that there's this um, kind of subtle subtle, nuanced understanding that, that well, masculinity itself must be toxic. Manhood itself must be toxic. There must be something inherently wrong with me just because I'm male. And so I think that we've got to be very careful in helping our boys to, to you know, to learn these truths of respect and to respect girls, but at the same time celebrate their masculinity and celebrate their manhood and celebrate the fact that God made them. Uh, he made them a boy, and one day they're going to be a man, and that is a gift. And true masculinity, men of integrity men who live out uh, their faith in, in a courageous way with character and authentic- authenticity. That's a gift to women, and that is a gift to the men who embody it. So while we we need to be intentional about helping our, our boys learn these blind spots and, and learn some of the, the common pitfalls that have trapped uh, so many men that have come before, we have to be really careful mm-hmm. not for our boys to pick up the message that, wow, there must be something wrong with me just because I'm a male. We have to find a balance of celebrating their masculinity while also helping them celebrate women. Yeah. you. In fact,
2: you have an entire chapter titled, What Does It Mean to Be a Real Man? In your final yeah. chapter, it's uh, titled Teaching Your Son the Right Lessons. What are some of the right lessons that, that boys need to be taught in order that they will become men who respect girls,
1: respect women? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that there, there are so many, but uh, one of them is just simply that integrity is being the same person uh, whether you're in public or whether you're, whether nobody but God is watching. And so many of the, the biggest public downfalls that we've seen and continue to see in the news have been from in the lost sight of that one simple lesson about what integrity really means. They, you know, they, they thought if, it's, if, if it, on the surface I look like things are successful— then it doesn't matter what I'm doing when no one's watching. It doesn't matter the thoughts that are happening in my head. Um, Those things don't matter, but those things really do matter. You know, that's why, you know, the the Bible talks about so much about those things, that the motives of our heart, the, the actions that we make when no one watches, how much those things matter. And so we need to just teach our boys that same thing, that, you know, that that uh, God has grace, we, we all blow it sometimes, and thankfully, because of what Jesus did on our behalf, there's there's grace. But there are also natural consequences for the things that we do, whether in public or in secret. And so a, a big part of the book is is helping to point our kids and ourselves, for that matter, back to that path of true integrity, of, of living out our life in such a way where um, we don't have to be afraid of our secrets coming to light, because we're the same person in public and in private. Mm.
2: One of the things that you write about is uh, how important it is for parents um, to somehow penetrate the, the secret world that, that some boys inhabit, uh, the world that isn't, is isn't visible to parents, that private world that uh, can influence behavior in ways that parents wouldn't necessarily be immediately aware of.
1: What advice do you give parents to penetrate that world? I think perhaps the best advice is just to to listen whenever your son is talking. There are going to be a lot of things your your son will want to talk to you about that you'll have no interest in. He'll want to talk to you about the video game that he's playing or the random YouTube video of somebody doing these pranks that you know that look painful to watch. But if he wants to share anything with you, um, then really listen and take an interest. And w- what you're doing is you're building up that relational equity and that trust, and you're showing him that you are the safest place on her- earth for him to share things with. I had a mentor. Tell me, listen when your kids want to talk to you about the little things. Because if you listen to the little things, they'll come to you with the big things. And so we've got to be willing to just just be available to you know to put our own phones down uh, sometimes and to really give our kids our undivided attention. And I've been as guilty as anybody of, of multitasking and trying to look at my phone when my kids are trying to tell me something. But the moments we can really show our kids that you there's nothing on earth more important to me than you and whatever you want to talk to me about right now, Um, the more we do that, the more likely they're going to be to to come to us when they do have a real struggle or a real fear or a big question. Mm. We
2: are just about out of time, but you, uh, in the epilogue, you feature a letter to your sons. What do you say to your sons that perhaps other parents should consider saying to their own?
1: I think that when we can tell our kids specifically how much we love them, how proud we are of them, um, our hopes and our dreams for their life, you know that that is a treasure. We might assume that they know those things already, but they can't hear those things enough. And and to write it, it was a gift for me to be able to write it out in such a public way that you know hopefully they'll they'll even. You know, read 20 years from now, and it'll mean more to them then, perhaps, Mm -hmm. than it does right now. Um, But I would challenge all parents to do that, to write, you know, write some things down for your kids um, in, in, in your own handwriting. In a world where we don't do that nearly often enough with all the tech we have, to just tell them how much you love them, how proud you are of them, and the prayers you're praying for them, and the dreams that you have for them. And that will be a treasure to them someday.
2: Absolutely.
1: Dave Willis, thank you so much
2: for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it very much. Again, the title of the book, Raising Boys Who Respect Girls. Upending Locker Room Mentality, Blind Spots, and Unintended Sexism. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Six minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show on this Wednesday afternoon. Just a reminder the uh, Democratic debate. Taking place this evening. Well, Pete Buttigieg, his dramatic rise from little-known Indiana mayor to a leading Democratic presidential candidate is facing a pretty tough test tonight. With rivals poised to a lob debate stage attacks in an effort to uh, stall his momentum, we saw that with Elizabeth Warren when she was on top. The debate in Atlanta marks the first time Buttigieg will face other White House hopefuls as an undisputed member of the top tier. The 37-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, gained significant ground in recent months in Iowa, which holds the nation's first caucus in February. He is... Um, Bunched at the top of most polls in Iowa with candidates who have much longer political resumes, former Vice President Joe Biden, Senators Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Some surveys are beginning to show him taking a more convincing lead in the race. Well, Buttigieg still faces plenty of hurdles in clinching the Democratic nomination, particularly winning over African-American and other minority voters. But his Iowa rise means he could come under fire from his rivals like never before. Anytime a candidate pops up above the the, uh, the pack, there's uh, various efforts to vet him on stage. Buttigieg is going to have to approve that his recent rise is not just a flash in the pan. You've got Biden, Warren, Sanders. They've all faced similar scrutiny in previous debates. And those attacks did little to change the trajectory of the race. We'll see what happens this time Around Again, that debate is taking place tonight, 6 o'clock p.m. on MSNBC Pacific Time. Former Vice President Joe Biden's staff got a little trigger happy today, prematurely sending out a fundraising email asking for feedback on his performance in the night's debate, asking in the subject line, did I make you proud? Ouch. Well, the email went out at about 3 p.m., a good six hours before the debate is set to kick off and at least eight hours before it's expected to end. I'm leaving the fifth Democratic debate now. The fundraiser plea begins. I hope I made you proud out there and I hope I made it clear that the world uh, clear to the world why our campaign is so important. End quote. Well, Biden's debate performances thus far have not been pivotal moments for him. And the only points at which other candidates have overtaken him came in the months since primary debates began. Wednesday's contest tonight's will be the. um, One of the first debates since Biden has lost his clear frontrunner status could allow him some breathing room as the others uh, will face the glare of the spotlight on other candidates, other rivals. Well, the email appears to preview an attack line Biden will be using against Senator Elizabeth Warren, who now knows what that attack line is. If her people are paying attention, we need more than plans. The plea declares a clear shot. And one of the vice president's chief rivals in her trove of policy plans. Well, but you do need plans. The email also alludes to the fluid nature of the primary field, which, after some winnowing, stands to potentially become more bloated. Even two months after the Iowa caucuses in recent months, the top competitors in the race have constantly shuffled, with Biden often on the losing end of that stick. Well, the primary is winding down, the email concludes acknowledging, I know it may not seem like it with such a, crowd, a crowded stage, but it is. Well, the campaign sent a follow-up email about an hour later apologizing for the gaff. Oops, the subject line read, uh, you might have just gotten an email from Joe about just getting off the debate stage. That's our bad. We know Joe is uh, going to make us proud tonight. We were um, just so excited for it that we accidentally hit the send button too soon. The email goes on before spinning the mistake into another solicitation asking for donations right now so that we can give Joe the good news before he hits the stage and then they make the solicitation. These kinds of mistakes, I suppose, happen, but in the age of uh, social media where you can communicate so quickly, That's probably going to happen more frequently than one would hope. Well, the Senate uh, confirmed yet another of President Trump's picks to a federal circuit court seat uh, today in a vote that tilts the balance of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals to a GOP-appointed majority. The 11th Circuit is now the third court to undergo such a transformation during Trump's presidency. With an 80-15 vote, the Senate confirmed Barbara Lagoa, she's the, uh, now on the seat held by judge Stanley Marcus a Clinton appointee who sat on the appeals court that handles cases from Florida, Georgia, and Alabama since 1997 <coughs> Lagoa the first Cuban-American woman confirmed to the 11th circuit tilts that court which was previously split between six Republican appointees, six Democratic appointees to a GOP appointed majority Trump's nominees alone now hold five of the 12 seats on the 11th Circuit. Now, you can't always determine what course that judge is likely to take based on the person who confirmed them. But it does tell you something about uh, the individual who expressed confidence in their role. Senate Minority Leader, rather Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell foreshadowed the development in a speech at the Annual Convention for the Federalist Society Um, He boasted last week about the president and the GOP-controlled Senate flipping both the Third and Second Circuit, which he just completed earlier that day with the confirmation of controversial nominee Stephen Menashe to the Second Circuit, while vowing to make judicial confirmations a priority. He said at the time we have flipped the Second and Third Circuit and we uh, will flip the 11th Uh, Texas professor who attended the convention paraphrased McConnell as saying, my model, leave no vacancy behind. Well, McConnell and Trump have made a point of filling federal courts from the Supreme Court on down to district courts. This has been especially true since uh, Democrats took control of the House of Representatives in the 2018 elections, shrinking the Senate's legislative agenda significantly. McConnell used a similar line in an appearance at a Federalist Society event in Kentucky last month, alongside Don McGahn, the former White House counsel who guided the nomination of Justice, Uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Justice Neil Gorsuch. The reason we've done all these circuit uh, judges and will ultimately do all the judges um, in the district is because it is my top priority. He said at the time, you want to have an impact on the country. There are many things that uh, we can do uh, that cannot be undone by the next election, but there's uh, uh, not much you can do about a young strict uh, constructionist who's committed for a lifetime to the quaint notion that maybe the job of a judge is to follow the law. He continued, my model for the rest of the year, leave no vacancy behind. But liberals say the judges Trump and McConnell have put on the courts are a threat to civil rights. Uh, Lagoa's uh, confirmation comes on the heels of a 6431 vote confirming Robert J. Luck to the 11th Circuit Court on Tuesday. The 40-year-old Luck replaces Gerald Bard, uh, Joe Flatt, 89-year-old Gerald Ford appointee. Lagoa was Trump's 48th nominee, confirmed to a circuit court seat, which is about to double the number of circuit court judges then-President Barack Obama had gotten through by the same point in his presidency. According to a count by the Heritage Foundation, Lagoa is Trump's 164th confirmation to the federal bench overall. Kerry Severino, chief counsel and policy director for the Conservative Judicial Crisis Network, hailed the president for his focus on confirming judges, making the point that this achievement, along with the record number of federal appellate judges the president has appointed to date, is a testament to the tangible impact the president has had in reshaping the federal judiciary with constitutionalist judges who are committed to the rule of law. For President Trump, this is a promise made and a promise kept to the American people. Well, the U.S. Senate unanimously passed legislation on Tuesday aimed at protecting human rights in Hong Kong with a crackdown on the pro-democracy protest movement, drawing condemnation from Beijing. No surprise there. Following the voice vote, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act will go to the House of Representatives, which approved its own version last month. The two chambers will have to work out their differences before any legislation can be sent to President Trump for his consideration. The people of Hong Kong see what's coming, they see the steady effort to erode the autonomy and their freedoms, Republican Senator Marco Rubio said at the start of the brief Senate debate, accusing Beijing of being behind the violence and repression in the Asian financial hub. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you this is opening weekend for the Portland Singing Christmas Tree in its 57th day. Year That begins with a performance Friday night, 7.30 p.m. at the Keller Auditorium. Two performances on Saturday, a matinee at 2, and an evening performance at 7. And then again on Sunday, a matinee at 2 o'clock. We resume on Friday, November the 29th with two performances. That's the day after Thanksgiving. One uh, matinee performance at 2 in the afternoon, an evening at 7 o'clock. And the same on Saturday, 2 o'clock matinee, 7 o'clock p.m. evening performance. And Sunday, the final The final show, the Portland Singing Christmas Tree in its 57th year. Make note of the uh, phone number for the box office, 503-557-8733. You can call during the day and reserve your tickets. 503-557-8733, Portland Singing Christmas Tree, opening weekend, Friday night, 7.30 p.m., Looking forward to seeing many of you there. Well, the Israel Defense Force, or the IDF, said it carried out wide-scale strikes of targets in Syria belonging to Iranian forces and the Syrian regime in response to the four rockets launched into Israel in the overnight hours. The targets reportedly included missile launchers, warehouses that stored weapons, command centers, and bases. In a series of tweets on Tuesday night, the IDF wrote, we just carried out wide-scale strikes of Iranian Quds forces and Syrian army forces. Uh, targets in Syria in response to the rockets fired at Israel by an Iranian force in Syria last night. Well, during our strike, the Iranian and Syrian terror targets, a Syrian air defense missile was fired despite clear warnings to refrain from such fire. As a result, a number of Syrian aerial defense batteries were destroyed, the IDF tweet said. Well, Syrians, uh, Syria's state SANA news or SANA news agency said two people were killed by shrapnel when an Israeli missile hit a house in the town of Uh, Sesa, southwest of Damascus. The report also said several others were wounded in the airstrikes near the capital, Damascus. It claimed that Syrian air defenses destroyed most of the Israeli missiles uh, before they reached their target. A Britain-based war monitoring group reported that 11 civilians, including seven non-Syrians, who were likely Iranians, were killed in that attack. Four rockets launched from Syria into Israel early Tuesday were intercepted by the Iron Dome defense system, the Israeli Defense Force said in a statement. We hold the Syrian regime responsible for the actions that take place in Syrian territory and warn them against allowing further attacks against Israel, the IDF tweeted on Wednesday. We will continue operating firmly and for as long as necessary against the Iranian entrenchment in Syria. The announcement by the IDF was a rare admission of military action in the Arab state, the Times of Israel reported, adding that Jerusalem has carried out hundreds of attacks in the war-torn nation, mostly against Iranian targets, but hardly ever confirmed by specific strikes. I have made clear that any who attack us, we will attack them. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that is what we did tonight toward military targets of the Iranian Quds Force and Syrian military targets. The four rockets were fired from Syria early on Tuesday, hours after Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced on Monday that the U.S. government will ease its stance on Israeli settlements in the West Bank, essentially undermining Palestinian claims regarding land sought for a future state. It wasn't clear whether the rocket launch was directly linked to that announcement. Pompeo essentially rejected the 1978 State Department legal opinion holding that civilian settlements in the occupied territories are inconsistent with international law. He also said the White House was reversing an Obama administration directive that allowed the U.N. Security Council to pass a resolution declaring the settlements a flagrant violation of international law. And while the new announcement received praise from Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Netanyahu, who called it historic, the international community, which overwhelmingly considers the settlements illegal, is not taking the news favorably. On Monday, the U.S. Embassy in Israel issued a travel warning to Jerusalem, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip, cautioning about Palestinian unrest following Pompeo's announcement. Last week, the Israeli military carried out a pair of targeted airstrikes on senior Islamic Jihad commanders in Gaza and in Syria. This prompted um, militants in Gaza to send a barrage of rockets over the border, with 90 percent intercepted by Israel's Iron Dome defense system. And in what's being uh, seen as a hopeful sign in the Afghan peace talks, the Taliban on Tuesday tweeted, "A rather freed two Western hostages who were held for more than three years, The hostages, both teachers at the American University in Kabul, held since 2016, were identified as American Kevin C. King, age 63, and Australian Timothy Weeks, 50. They were released to American forces as part of a prisoner swap. We are so happy to hear that my brother has been freed and is now on his way home to us. King's sister, Stephanie Miller, said... In her statement, this has been a long and painful ordeal for our entire family, and his safe return has been our highest priority. King is now said to be with American officials and is receiving medical care ahead of his return to the United States. King's brother-in-law said the family is particularly grateful to members of the hostage recovery fusion cell who have supported us through the past three trying years. We also want to send our very special best wishes to Tim Weeks and his family as they welcome him home. In exchange for the hostages, Afghanistan released three Taliban members, one of which was uh, Anas Haqqani, the younger brother of the group's military operations leader. The exchange brokered by American peace envoy uh, uh, Khalid Azad after he had negotiated a tentative agreement earlier with the Taliban that would uh, included uh, terms of an American troop withdrawal. However, those talks were ended by President Trump in September. Uh, President um, Uh, Ashraf Ghani said last week that the exchange was intended to facilitate direct peace negotiations between the Afghan government and the Taliban. He also hopes uh, the exchange could nudge the Taliban toward agreeing to at least a partial ceasefire, which would uh, be a precondition to further talks. Well, the 16 year old Southern California high school student who shot five of his classmates on Thursday before turning the gun on himself has died, according to authorities. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office confirmed that Nathaniel Tensuki um, Berchot uh, passed away at three twenty, or rather three thirty-two Pacific time. His mother was uh, present at the time, according to the sheriff's office statement. I grieve for this mother. Authorities say uh, Bershow pulled a gun from his backpack on Thursday at Sagas High School in Los Angeles, suburb of Santa Clarita, shot five students at random in an outdoor plaza and then shot himself in the head. The shooting, captured on surveillance video, took 16 seconds. Investigators told reporters earlier Friday they had not uncovered a motive for the shooting despite undertaking more than 40 interviews. The attack killed 15-year-old Gracie Mullenberger, a 14-year-old Uh, Dominic Blackwell. Two girls remain hospitalized but are expected to be released this weekend. Their names have not been released. A 14-year-old boy was treated and released from another hospital, according to authorities. And though police have not found a motive in the attack, uh, they do believe it was premeditated. When his mother dropped him off at school, he had the pistol in uh, in his backpack and a planned number of shots in his bag. We have the image of a loner, someone who is socially awkward, doesn't get along with some violent tendencies, dark brooding, online strange posting, stuff like that. The Los Angeles County Sheriff uh, said, with this boy, investigators have found nothing out of the ordinary. He's a cookie cutter kid that you could find anywhere. Not very reassuring or helpful. Authorities also said that no diary, manifesto or suicide note had been found. Blackwell was a part of the Saugus Junior ROTC program and previously played for a local Pop Warner League in Santa Clarita, according to the hometown station. He was always smiling, making people laugh, always positive. He was the sweetest kid ever and such a good kid. That's a quote from a teammate uh, on uh, Twitter. We need more people like you. Long live Dominic Blackwell. Love you. Of course, that was written contemporaneous to his um, being on the team. Um uh, the sheriff's office uh, said they he had recently celebrated his 15th birthday. Some had suggested it was that day. Her classmates described um, her, the one of the shooters, as sweet and fun, a girl known and loved by virtually everyone, the Los Angeles Times wrote. Um, and again, the community is grieving the loss of these students and now the shooter himself. His life has ended. Well, two prison guards who were on duty during the night Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, in quotes, have been taken into custody Tuesday on federal charges linked to their alleged failure to check on his well-being. The guards um, have been charged with making false records and conspiring to make false records and to defraud the United States by impairing the lawful functions of the Metropolitan Correctional Center, the New York facility where Epstein was found dead on the 10th of August. As alleged, the defendants had a duty to ensure the safety and security of federal inmates in their care at the Metropolitan Correctional Center, U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Berman said in a statement. Instead, they repeatedly failed to conduct mandated checks on inmates and lied to officials on forms to hide their dereliction. Both guards surrendered themselves to authorities on Tuesday morning, according to prosecutors. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Chick-fil-A has announced that it's going to stop giving to the Salvation Army, the FCA, with the concerns that have been expressed through protests from the LGBTQ community. Well, they announced their plans to end charitable giving to Christian organizations that includes the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes um, with a backlash that's come. Uh, as the popular Christian-owned business has expanded beyond the United States. Well, the strategic shift has disappointed evangelicals and puzzled many who admired the chain stance and leaders at Salvation Army who say its outreach supports members of the LGBT and serves that population facing homelessness and poverty. There's no question we know that if we go into new markets, we need to be clear about who we are. That's a quote from Chick-fil-A President and Chief Operating Officer Tim Tasselpalaus um, speaking to uh, biz now on monday these are uh, there are lots of articles and newscasts about chick-fil-a and we thought we needed to be clear about our message well, Chick-fil-A, the country's third largest fast food chain behind McDonald's and Starbucks, has been blocked from opening new locations in San Antonio and Buffalo airports this year over criticism for donating to organizations with a traditional Christian view on sexuality. Previously, it had faced resistance from the same re- for the same reason from politicians in Boston, San Francisco, and Chicago. Internationally, the shopping center in uh, Reading, uh, England, announced eight days into Chick-fil-A's re- uh, lease of a new location that the lease would not be renewed when it expired. The mall cited a desire to offer an inclusive space where everyone is welcome. Of course, everyone is welcome at Chick-fil-A. An unnamed Chick-fil-A executive told uh, BizNow the chain was taking, in, uh, taking it on the chin in media reports about LGBT protests and couldn't ignore the threat to its growth. Well, several years ago, the restaurant change, they stopped um, giving to some organizations that oppose same-sex marriage, like Family Research Council. But they continue to support groups like the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and Salvation Army, which are not focused in any way uh, on political action. Well, going forward, it will end multi-year uh, commitments to both charities after donating $1.65 million to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and 115000 to the Salvation Army in 2018, according to tax forms. The Salvation Army, which is the Christian denomination now better known as one of the biggest charities in the United States, told Christianity Today it is uh, saddened to learn that a corporate partner has felt it necessary to divert funding to other Hunger, education, and homeless organizations areas in which the Salvation Army is the largest social service provider in the world, is already fully committed. The uh, Salvation Army brings in about four point three billion dollars in revenue annually and says it does not discriminate against LGBT community and its programs, services, or hiring. Officers in the Salvation Army, who are ordained as ministers are asked to comply with its theological teachings on sexuality, and that to some is beyond the pale. We serve more than 23 million individuals a year, including those in the LGBTQ plus community, the Salvation Army stated. In fact, we believe we are the largest provider of poverty relief to the LGBTQ plus population. When misinformation is perpetuated without fact, our ability to serve those in need, regardless of sexual orientation, gender identity, religion, or other factors is at risk. We urge the public to seek the truth before rushing to ill-informed judgment and greatly appreciate those partners and donors who ensure that anyone who needs our help feels safe and comfortable Coming through our doors. Well, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes didn't respond thus far. According to its own report, the FCA brought in about $114 million in 2018, but financial support from foundations like Chick fil A's make up about 14% of its uh, overall budget. The FCA asks leaders to sign a purity statement committing to avoiding homosexual activity and sex outside of marriage. Well, beginning in 2020, Chick fil A's charitable arm, the Chick fil A Foundation, is instead going to focus 9 million dollars in philanthropic gifts on three initiatives promoting education combating youth homelessness and reducing hunger for years evangelical and in, um, in particular have appreciated the christian identity and values espoused by the popular closed-on-Sunday restaurant chain. Founded by the late Truett Cathy, uh, a faithful Baptist, in a brand study by Morning Consult, 62% of evangelicals said Chick-fil-A had a positive impact on their community compared to 48% of Americans on average. Conservative politician and commentator Mike Huckabee, he organized a campaign to support Chick-fil-A with the pushback from the LGBT advocates in 2012. He said today Chick-fil-A betrayed loyal customers for... Um, Uh, For money, I regret believing they would stay true to convictions of founder Truett. Kathy, sad. Well, columnist Rod Dreher, he wrote, I love Chick-fil-A, but it's going to be a while before I go there again. This is nothing but gutless surrender. Wheaton College professor Ed Stetzer tweeted, biblical orthodoxy matters and biblical orthodoxy increasingly has a cost in hashtag America 2019. Chick-fil-A's new charitable focus directs funds to Junior Achievement USA, Covenant House, and local food banks. The restaurant said it will dedicate $25,000 to a local food bank at uh, each new Chick-fil-A opening. The chain's mission statement established by Kathy is to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us, to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. Well, the current president and COO told BizNow that the foundation will be open to partnering with faith-based charities in the future, but that none of the organizations have anti-LGBT positions. He said the shift in giving is just the right thing to do, to be clear, caring, and supportive, and to do uh, that in our community. Well, again, there are lots of people who are puzzled by the decision, frustrated and disappointed by the decision. But they have uh, defended themselves, saying that they're simply shifting their focus um, rather than uh, moving away from their core values. Well, in the season, the final season of NBC comedy series Parks and Recreation, it's set in then-future 2017, the characters remarked at how Chick-fil-A's stock had soared since being purchased by entertainer Elton John. The writers of that show were not nearly creative enough. They would not have imagined that in 2019, in which Donald Trump was president, Kanye West, a Christian icon in Chick-fil-A, is blasted online by Christians as politically correct and in opposition to those with biblical beliefs about marriage. Well, the controversy comes, of course. Uh, because of Chick-fil-A's announcement that it will reorient funding around two or three key initiatives, ending longstanding charity work with the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And you don't get much more innocuous than those two organizations. The ambiguity of the company's wording, along with the reporting on both sides of the so-called culture war, suggests that this has to do with these organizations' commitment to a biblical definition of marriage and sexuality. And many Christians are angry about this. One said... Uh, Mimicking a new advertising campaign, Chicken, it's not just on our menu, it's who we are. End quote. Well, that's understandable given the way the corporation in recent years have sought to marginalize and stigmatize views on marriage held by at least a sizable minority of Americans, and which was and is the dominant view on marriage. To merely dissent from the sexual revolution in any way is often characterized as bigotry. The Salvation Army and the FCA are hardly angry culture warriors railing against those who disagree. They simply refuse to change views consistent with biblical text and with 2,000 years of Christian teaching. As one Christian said, I can see Planned Parenthood demonizing these um, good groups as untouchable bigots, but Chick-fil-A? The Cathay family... um, has stood on firm ground for a very long period of time. Let's suppose, for the sake of argument, the situation is exactly what it appears to many. The Chick-fil-A is surrendering to the dominant cultural narrative on marriage and sexuality, such that they would shun groups that, that, that believe what every branch of Christianity and almost every other world religion has taught for millennia. What then? Well, some Christians are already talking boycotts. I wouldn't advise it. I've addressed this elsewhere, but it bears repeating here that while boycotts are not always wrong, they're almost always counterproductive. The reason for this is not because of their effectiveness or lack thereof, but because of what they tend to do to the boycotters. The assumptions behind a boycott is that our power is economic and majoritarian. If you lose us, you lose money and status. But for those of us who are a people of Christ, that's not our power. Our argument about marriage is not that we are many, enabled us to impose our views, but the exact reverse. Our argument is that marriage and sexuality aren't shaped by ongoing majority votes, but are rooted in something mysterious to the world, the union of the church to a crucified Christ, Ephesians 5.32. The cross is a contradiction to the power of this world and needs to be propping up by uh, by uh, them, whether whether governmental or corporate or cultural. Well, there's a place for Christians to engage with the company, to ask questions and to provide input on what they are saying with the withholding of funds in the future. We should be engaged but we shouldn't feel betrayed and defeated. Whatever the culture markers of chicken, of Christian chicken that we halfway we uh, joke about, the Bible and the gospel do not need corporate sponsorship of any kind. If that's what happened, then it's sad to see Chick-fil-A do um, uh, to ministries what other groups sought uh, for them to do. But even if it is, a corporation is always going to disappoint as a, mo- as a moral model, regardless of whether that... Morality is left or right, Christian or secular. For our models, we need to no franchise, culturally approved outposts of finance. Though we should be thankful when we see such occasionally, we need outposts of the kingdom following Jesus by faith. So what's behind the uh, decision on the part of Chick-fil-A? I couldn't tell you. It is disappointing. One can only hope for the best moving forward. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments to wrap things up.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, this is what the headline said: Washington Oregon governors sign agreement to replace I five bridge. Okay, do you believe it? Well, Governor Inslee says we do not have an option. This bridge has to be replaced. Well, that's certainly been the mantra for a very, very long period of time. But apparently, Washington Governor Jay Inslee and Oregon Governor Kate Brown signed an agreement Monday morning to work cooperatively to replace the Interstate 5 bridge between their two states. Now, the two governors sat at a table at the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust at the waterfront in Vancouver with a distinctive green bridge in the background to reinvigorate the nation process to replace the twin spans, which opened in 1917 and in 1958. Says uh, Endley, the governor of Washington, I could not be more excited about an endeavor that unites the energies of two states. And the reason is that bridges, besides being steel, are essentially monuments to optimism. And our two states are extremely optimistic. We believe in a dynamic growth oriented future. End quote. Well, the two Democratic governors are were flanked rather by Washington Transportation Secretary Roger Miller and Oregon Department of Transportation Deputy Director Chris Strickler. Who will become director upon Oregon Senate confirmation. A number of Washington lawmakers and officials from the City of Vancouver, C-Tran and Southwest Washington Regional Transportation Council, the City of Portland and Metro attended the event on Monday. Governor Inslee said he is optimistic this second effort will succeed following the twenty thirteen disintegration of the Columbia River crossing because of changes in the Washington legislature and growing recognition of the existing span's seismic vulnerability. We know, the governor went on to say, it is mandatory we replace the bridge. We do not have an option. This bridge has to be replaced. Well, Governor Brown, for her part, said the two states will open a joint project office to examine work previously completed and chart a new course for replacing the bridge. It's high time that we address the congestion between the two states and invest in a bridge that will withstand the test of time, she said. Governor Brown said her top priorities are building an earthquake-resilient bridge with high-capacity transit. We have to invest in the bedrock of our state's economy, uh, economies, plural, and that's infrastructure, she said. When working properly, infrastructure goes unnoticed, but without it, we are literally In the uh, for a bumpy ride. Well, neither governor said the project must extend Oregon's light rail line into Vancouver, which was a major sticking point with some Clark County residents and lawmakers representing the county of uh, Olympia. Lack of legislative support in that um, capital, including by GOP lawmakers representing Clark County, led to the Columbia River crossing demise some six years ago. Well, the memorandum of intent signed on Monday leaves open the possibility that a bridge could have bus rapid transit instead of light rail. We need the smartest, most efficient, most cost-effective type of transit, Governor Brown said. We are going to be doing a traffic analysis ahead of time to help us determine what's the best solution for the I-5 bridge replacement project. Governor Inslee said, although he's advocated for light rail in the past, transit decisions will be based on data, not ideology. We're not setting preconditions, he said. We're going to be driven by data, and there's going to be a thorough analysis of the alternatives. And we will have um, a vigorous discussion with our constituents. to see what their thoughts are. I think going into this without preconditions is a really good place to be, given the history of this project. Well, Governor Inslee, however, also indicated that high-capacity transit should operate in its own space instead of sharing traffic lanes with cars and trucks. The one thing I think we do understand very deeply on both sides of the river is that any high-capacity corridor has to be dedicated high-capacity corridor. He said that's a reality that sometimes uh, most folks have not really understood. So we will follow data-driven decisions with a geophysical requirement in mind. So who pays for all of this and how much? Well, the two governors didn't speculate on how much the project could cost and said they... um, They would be looking to the federal government for financial assistance and assume there will be tolling. The price tag, I assure you, will... Uh, be lower than uh, we wait uh, if we wait another year or two to get the job done, Governor Inslee said. The least expensive way to replace this bridge is to start today. Other than that, the parameters are unknown because we have to design the bridge. Well, Governor Inslee said the replacement bridge should be included in any federal infrastructure package, adding that it's hard to imagine the project would not be in the top echelon of transportation needs nationwide. He may be in for a surprise. Initiative 976 is going to cut car tabs to $30 and rescind additional transportation charges enacted by local governments will not torpedo the new bridge effort, he said. The measure approved by Washington voters in November will eliminate about one point nine two billion dollars in state revenues over the next six years, according to the Washington Office of Financial Management. Well, Governor Inslee announced the day after the election that he has directed the Washington State Department of Transportation to postpone projects not yet underway. This apparently would be an exception. This is a safety issue, a replacement of an existing bridge, he said on Monday. Our freeze, if you will, applies to new capacity infrastructure. So we will move forward with joint uh, the joint office. Well, after Monday signing, the two governors posed for photos with legislators and other officials before holding a 30-minute closed-door meeting with invited guests. They later traveled to Salem for meetings with Oregon lawmakers. Well, the two-page memorandum of intent signed on Monday makes only a few commitments – Open a joint Oregon-Washington project office that will reevaluate the purpose and need and permits for the failed Columbia River Crossing project. Assume that any plan for a new bridge will include high-capacity transit. Develop a finance plan for the project that assumes some costs will be covered by tolls. Evaluate project scope, schedule, and budget for replacing the bridge. Re-engage key stakeholders and the public on replacing the bridge. The project office is supposed to provide a draft process report of the two states by the 1st of December. That's less than uh, or fewer than two weeks away and a final report. On December 1st, 2020, the Memorandum of Intent takes effect immediately, lasts for five years with the potential of, uh, for amendments and renewal by consent of both governors. Either state can terminate the agreement unilaterally by providing three months written notice. So we'll see how it goes this time around, as opposed to what we uh, witnessed, those of us who were around at the time a uh, few years back. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Daniel Darling. He's the author of The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. I know what you're thinking. We haven't yet had Thanksgiving, and you're already talking about Christmas. Well, we're going to talk about the characters of Christmas that we will be reflecting on during the season, and this might uh, Wet your appetite just a bit to open the word and study a bit further, a little deeper into the lives of some of these characters that will make up the, uh, the central features and figures of the story of the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of the Christ. So that's coming up tomorrow on the program. And uh, I think it's going to be all right. I think it's going to be all right. Uh, Just one reminder, the Luis Palau birthday party is coming up next Wednesday, a week from today. So uh, make note of that at the Downtown Bible Class. Uh, Check that out, and I hope you can join us to say happy birthday. We appreciate and love you, Luis Palau. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
0: Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.